God is with us, is He not? Well, good morning. Good morning. All right, I like it. I like it. Well, I want to thank you for your prayers for my family. We have been struggling uh, since uh, last weekend with sickness, and so uh, our family decided to come in late and uh, and leave early. We want to be here, but uh, we we still are kind of struggling a bit. So. They're going to be in the back and then slide out in a little bit. We just love you guys too much to miss two Sundays in a row. Um, I also uh, want to just say that I rejoice in Thanksgiving over our church. This past Thursday as we celebrated Thanksgiving, I gave thanks to the Lord for you, my spiritual family, and uh, rejoice in every relationship that we have that has been uh, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. With that, I would like to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark will be studying verses 12 through 25 in chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. The title of the message is A Somber Celebration. A Somber Celebration. I will read the text and then we'll pray together for God's help. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish, with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. God, we call this the prayer of illumination because we desire for you to bring light 
to us. We, des we desire for You to reveal Your glory, Your power, Your strength, Your worth, Your love, Your mercy, and Your grace to us. And we cannot have any of that apart from Your special blessing and apart from Your Holy Spirit giving it to us. And so right now, as a body of believers who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we call upon the Spirit of Jesus Christ and we say, speak to us. Show us Your way. Show us Your will. Show us Your character. Show us, above all things, Your beloved Son. And change us today. Transform us from one glory to another. That we may be like Him. And live as He lived. And honor You as He honored You. We pray this in the precious and sweet and beloved name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Alright, so the first thing I think that I want to say is that it is dead in here. It is dead. There is just no life right now. And so I want to right now ask you to pray and to call upon the Holy Spirit and, and join with me in worshiping the Lord through reading His Word, through studying His Word, okay? We need feedback, we need life, we need energy, and we need to want to God to speak to us clearly, okay? So, so the first thing that I want to say now is that a wise pastor told me a number of years ago when I was first starting in the ministry and I was discouraged about things that were going on in the body, um, there was betrayal, there was uh, unfaithfulness, there was disobedience. And this pastor said to me, Ryan, you are going to have to learn to live joyfully with a broken heart if you're going to lead God's people. You are going to have to learn to live joyfully with a broken heart if you're going to lead God's people. And if you get underneath that statement, what, what essentially he's saying is this, is that betrayal and disobedience is going to be part and parcel to the life of the body of Christ. I mean, husbands are going to betray wives, wives are going to betray husbands. Parents are going to betray kids, kids are going to betray parents. Friends are going to betray one another. Members are going to betray one another. Uh, part of the body is going to pray, betray their leaders, and sometimes, unfortunately, leaders will betray their, their members. It just happens. So you have to understand that. And at the very same time that betrayal and disobedience is a reality, at the same time there is obedience and honor and blessing and faithfulness. Husbands are sacrificing themselves for their wives. Wives are honoring their husbands. Children are obeying their parents. Parents are training their kids in the way of the Lord. Friends are sacrificing their lives for one another. And it is a beautiful and glorious thing to behold. And all of that's going on at the same time. No, you've got betrayal on one side, and then you've got faithfulness on another side, and this is the nature of people who follow after Jesus. And I believe that Mark would tell us this was the very nature of the disciples who were following after Jesus 
the very night that they enjoy their last supper with Him. Because that's what we see. I have titled the message a somber celebration because it is a celebration on one hand of the ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. It is somber on the other hand because there is a betrayer in the midst. There is denial in the midst. There are people who are turning away from the ultimate Passover lamb. So this is what I believe that Mark would say to us this morning if he was standing here. He would say, trust in the ultimate Passover lamb and instead of betraying him, trust in him. Instead of turning away from him, believe in him. Instead of when you're persecuted and when times are getting rough, running away, cling to Him all the more because He is the ultimate Passover Lamb in whom you must put your trust if you want to have salvation and redemption in your life. And so Mark draws our attention to three significant matters. If you're taking notes, there'll just be three significant matters in the last meal that Jesus had with His disciples that should move us into deeper worship and deeper trust in Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. And the first matter of great importance is Passover. Passover. If you just notice down in the text, you'll actually see the emphasis of Passover. Look down at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Look down at verse 14. Verse 14 Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Look down at verse 16. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So the Passover is what governs over this entire text. It is the main theme of what we read about here. And so it would... We are compelled to understand Passover in a deep way. In a very deep way, okay? So, this is what I want you to do. I want you right now to transport your mindset 3,500 years ago. And I want you to transfer yourself from 21st century A.D., United States of America, back into 1440... B.C. into the land of Egypt. And I want you to imagine yourself as an Israelite person living in bondage, in slavery, under Pharaoh in Egypt. Picture yourself there. You you are a slave. You belong to a family of Israelites who are also slaves. You live in a home with with your family. All right? And, And you are in bondage, and all your family knows is bondage, and you wake up at 5 a.m. every morning to be out the door at 6 in order to make bricks for Pharaoh and the Egyptian empire. And you work your fingers to the bone all day long until 6 at night. And then you come home, and you eat a meal, and you sit around with your family until you're exhausted and you fall asleep and you wake up at 5 the next morning, and you do the same thing. Day after day after day after day. That is your life. Slavery and bondage in Egypt under an oppressive regime ruled by Pharaoh himself. And so you're miserable. Your, your work is physically impossible. And so not only you and your family 
But all of the Israelites around you ultimately cry out to God for help. And you say, God, save us. You are the God of Abraham. You are the God of Isaac. You are the God of Jacob. Please come and deliver us from this oppression. And God hears you. He hears you. And He sends this man, Moses. All right, and Moses, you've heard of him. You know about him. Because he, he had grown up in Pharaoh's household. And then he had a violent temper. And, and in, in order to, to, to salvage a, a Jewish person's life, he killed an Egyptian. And then he, an arrest was made out for him. And so he had to flee off. And he's been away for 40 years. But God sends this man back from the wilderness to Egypt in order to deliver you. And there's a little bit of hope in you, but there's also some pessimism because of this. You know about his failure in times past, so you're a bit skeptical. But this is what happens. Moses comes into Egypt and he's used as a mouthpiece for the Lord, and this is what he promises to you. This is what he says. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. The Lord promises through Moses that you will find rescue. You will be rescued. I will rescue you out of Egypt. And then he says, I will, I will release you. You will no longer be a slave of Pharaoh. No, you'll be released. You'll be free from that bondage. And not only that, I will redeem you. I will redeem you. I will buy you back. And you will be in covenant relationship with me. And I will bless you. And then not only will I redeem you, but I will also renew my relationship with you. You will be my people, and I will be your God. And there will be a great relationship between you and I, and you will know the full and complete promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will even deliver you into the promised land, and you will know all of that glorious blessing. That's a great promise as you're sitting here. You're saying, I'm going to be rescued. I'm going to be released. I'm going to be redeemed. I'm ultimately going to be renewed in a personal, vibrant relationship with the Almighty God. This is glorious. And so, and so Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no way, Jose. He says, it's not going to happen. And so what happens? What happens? God sends plagues. He sends plague after plague after plague in order to show His power over the Egyptians and in order to release His people out of the bondage of Egypt. He sends blood and frogs and gnats become an annoyance and very creepy among the, the, the people of Egypt because you'd go out to the sea and you would see nothing but blood. You'd go to the river, you'd see nothing but blood. Everywhere there was water, it was just full of blood and gnats were flying around and it was just completely gross everywhere you went. But then Pharaoh did not turn and let the people go and so there were more plagues that came. Flies and livestock and boils on people's head. Livestock were, were killing over one after another and so the destruction of, Egypt, of Egypt's started to look like it was going to be imminent. But Pharaoh did not turn, and so God sent three more plagues. Hell, and locusts, and darkness. And people start getting really frightened and scared, and they see that their life is beginning to change because of all of these plagues. But God saves the, last pl the, the, the most important and significant and devastating plague as the last one, the tenth one. The plague of the what? Firstborn. The plague of the firstborn. And what God says is that I'm going to 
fly through. I'm going to come over Egypt and, and I'm going to strike down the firstborn of every man in every household and the firstborn of every beast of every household. And that's going to happen. It doesn't matter whether you're Egyptian or whether you're an Israelite. Because of sin, because of rebellion, because of your depravity, you're going to get struck down. But, as an Israelite, if you and your family will do this, if you will take a lamb, a precious one-year-old male lamb that is undefiled, that is there's an unblemished, and if you kill that lamb and you roast it, but before you roast it, you take its blood and it drips into a basin and you take that basin full of blood and you go out to the front of your house and you put the blood on the doorpost of your house. Spread it on there nice and thick so it can be seen when the angel of death flies over your house and sees the blood of the lamb. He will pass over your house and not strike down the firstborn. Rather, you will be saved because you have trusted in my provision of the Passover lamb. And so that's exactly what you do. You and your family, you take a lamb, you, you kill it, you take its blood, you put it on the doorpost, you then roast it, and you begin to celebrate the very first Passover feast that God prescribes. He lays it out very clearly. It shall be unleavened bread. There shall be bitter herbs. There's going to be fruit. There's going to be um, other types of things to celebrate this time. But it's going to be the very first inaugural Passover meal. And that's exactly what your family does on the 14th day of Abib. And so, the angel of death comes into Egypt, and all of a sudden, you begin to hear screams, cries. Because you're around the Egyptians, and mothers are lo losing their sons left and right. It is a night of death, but in your home, everyone is safe. Why? Because you have trusted in the provision of the Lord of a Passover, a substitute lamb, in the place of your firstborn. Well, that is exactly what transpired. And that is the very first Passover meal. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to fast forward and I want you now to imagine yourself as a first century Jew living in the time of Jesus. Even celebrating Passover meal, you are... You are a citizen in Jerusalem. You are, you are a family member. And it has been 1,500 years since the very first Passover meal. But now, 1,500 years later, after annual celebrations of the first Passover, you and your family are celebrating what God did back in Exodus chapter 12 in Egypt, just as the Lord prescribed that it shall be an annual celebration. And so, you and your family faithfully worship the Lord. You attend worship at the temple, you give tithes, you send your children to the synagogues in order to be trained in the Scriptures, you love the Lord, you're, you're seeking, you, you want the Messiah to come, you are a faithful family. And you zealously participate 
in the Passover meal and the feast of unleavened bread that goes for seven days. Okay? Y'all with me? All right. So, you make preparations. Let's just say you have brothers and sisters that are coming down from Jericho. They're coming down from Capernaum, uh, the area of Galilee. It's very much like our Thanksgiving celebration, okay? People are excited. Families get together because we're going to celebrate the annual feast of Passover every year. And all of our family is together. And it is the best night of the year every year. And so you go out and you secure the lamb. You go to the temple, you purchase it, and you roast it. You go to the market, and you get the bitter herbs. You take the bread, and you, you, you bake it. It is unleavened. There's absolutely no leaven in it. You take fruit, and you, you, you um, press all the fruit together to make sure that it is ready for the bowl, and the fruit is uh, representative of the, the clay that the Israelites used because it was the same color. It kind of had the same consistency, and so it was to remind you of, of your um, great-great-great-grandparents' slavery and bondage in Egypt. And these bitter herbs represent the bitterness of slavery. The lamb represents the Passover lamb. The red wine celebrates the, the blood that was shed on your behalf and also prefigures that Exodus 24 covenant that God had made where part of the blood of animals was sprinkled on the altar and then part of it was sprinkled on the people saying you are now entering into covenant with me as a people who have been delivered over, been delivered through the Passover. Alright, so it's night time. It's the 14th day of Nisan. It is the night of the Passover meal. And it's time to celebrate. There were four parts of the Passover celebration. Four parts. They were representative of the four aspects of deliverance from Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7. I talked to you about being rescued, about being released and redeemed and renewed by God. That's why there were four parts of the Passover meal. And each part was represented by a cup of wine. Passover meal, you, you had four different cups of wine, which is why it was diluted with water during the Passover time because you were going to be drinking a lot of wine. And so what happens is the leader of the family, you might be the great granddad, you may be the granddad or the dad, the leader of the family would preside over the Passover meal. And, 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 and different from most Thanksgiving celebrations today among Christians, it was an actual celebration. It was an actual time to discuss the Lord and to worship the Lord and to get your mind and your heart fixed on the Lord who has delivered you. And so these four parts would happen. And so part one included the man who is the leader presiding over and he would give a blessing for this feast. And he would say... May the Lord bless our Passover celebration for His glory and for our good as we remember how He delivered our ancestors out of Egypt and how we look forward to Him ultimately delivering us through His Messiah. And then they would take a cup of wine and they would all drink the cup of wine to begin the celebration. After they drink the cup of wine, all of the food would be brought out onto the table. All of it would be brought out on the table. The bitter herbs, the lamb itself in the center, uh, obviously the wine is already there, the unleavened bread, the mixed fruit, and the leader of the Passover meal would then begin to explain 
how every one of these food items represents what transpired in Exodus when the, the, the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt. That's what he would do. And then people's minds and their hearts began to be thankful as, as the leader would say, this represents the bitterness of slavery. These herbs represent the bitterness of slavery. Praise God we're no longer enslaved to Egypt. This wine represents the blood that was spilt on our behalf. Praise God that our firstborn was not struck down. This fruit represents the clay that, that we had to make day after day after day under the bondage of slavery. Praise God we no longer have to do that. And praise God that we have ultimate deliverance when a Messiah comes. And then after he explained all of that, all right, they would give praise to God. And then they would sing... This is important. They would sing Psalm 113, Psalm 114, and Psalm 115. If you didn't know, the Psalms are actually songs. And so they would sing chapter after chapter after chapter. Like Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. And that is exactly what everyone at the mill surrounded, uh, surrounding the table would sing and say unto the Lord. That was part one. Part two, the second wine, the second cup of wine is drunk. And after everyone drinks that, the leader um, blesses the bread. And he says, the Lord our God who is sovereign over the world has called bread to come forth out of the earth. And this is what everybody around the table says, Amen. And he breaks the bread in pieces and he passes it around to everyone who is celebrating the feast. And then what do they do? They dip it into the fruit and they begin to eat. And the meal really begins. And the lamb is passed around and the herbs are passed around. Wine is also passed around. The meal begins in full force and it lasts a long time. And people are enjoying, they're celebrating, they're worshiping, they're talking about the Lord, they're talking about past deliverance and future deliverance. And then when everyone is finished, the leader says, speak praises to our God to whom belongs what we have eaten. And everyone says, praise be to our God. That's part two of the meal. Part three, when the meal is completed, the leader then blesses the third cup. He holds it in his hand. And he says, let us give thanks for the Lord's provision. And they take Psalm 116, 117, and 118. These are all the Hallel Psalms. And they begin to sing each psalm one after another after another. It's like our hymns. And they just sing praises unto God to celebrate the Passover. And they celebrate their rescue and their redemption and their release and their renewal of a relationship with God. The meal had to be done before midnight. And so part four of the meal was the last cup of wine. And after everyone has given praise to God and talked about His past deliverance, His present deliverance in your life, and His future deliverance through a Messiah, you take the fourth cup of wine and the leader says, let's all give praise to God. And they raise their glasses and they drink their fourth cup of wine prior to midnight as the Lord instructed. And that was the Passover meal. And so, as a devout Jew, as one who is earnest in your worship of the Lord, on this night, 
you are excited. There is anticipation. Because what you're thinking is, just as on that night, when the Lord delivered my people so many years ago, this night could be the night that the Messiah comes and delivers us. This could be the night where redemption really begins. And it's not a temporary one. It's a final one. It's not a physical one. It's a spiritual one. And we could ultimately experience it. Now, that is Passover for a first century Jew who is yet to grasp the person and worship of Jesus Christ. It is worshipful. It is exciting. It, 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 is, it is vibrant. It is celebratory. And it is also forward-looking at what God might do. Now, there are no applications or principles from this very first matter because we're going to see it right here at the end. But do you all get a picture of what happened the first Passover and in the first century along the time of Jesus? Good. Well, let's go to number two, the second matter. Betrayal. Because what has happened, Jesus has said, I want you to prepare the Passover meal for us. And so two of the disciples go, and they find everything that the Lord has said that they will find, just like uh, He did in chapter 11 when He said, you're going to find a donkey, and this is what you're going to do with it. God, the Lord just lays it out exactly as it, as it is, and the disciples make all of these preparations that I just talked about, getting the meal ready. And they find this upper room. And then if you will look down at the text, beginning in verse 16, we see betrayal. They went out to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Verse 18. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. The first thing I think that it would be good for us to do is to identify what is betrayal? What is betrayal? Betrayal is turning against someone that you're in a covenant relationship with or a committed relationship with and giving that person over to the enemy. That's what a betrayal is. That's what it is in the Scriptures. That's what it is. I mean, who... Who is the most famous betrayer in, in uh, American history? Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold. What did Benedict Arnold do? Benedict Arnold betrayed the Continental Army and he left the Continental Army and went over to the other side of the British and fought for them. Before he did that, he actually tried to give them all the plans of the Continental Army, he tried to do um, everything that he could to destroy the Continental Army and the, the desire for America to become its own free union. And the reason that he did so, because he was bitter. He was bitter at how he had been treated by the leaders. He was jealous at the progress of other of his leaders around him who, who went up higher in rank than he did, even though he felt like he deserved it. And out of bitter, bitterness, out of jealousy, and out of greed, he turned against his own people to go with the British. And listen, that is the same that happened with Judas and is the same that happens with people today for various reasons. So let's look down. Jesus says, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. You are pretending that you love me. 
that you enjoy me, that you desire my glory, but in fact, you will betray me. Look at verse 19. They began to be sorrowful. That is, they were grieved by what Jesus said. And they began to say to Him, one after another, Is it I? Peter says, Is it I? James says, Is it I? Andrew says, Is it I? John says, Is it I? Simon says, Is it I? They go one by one. Judas says, Is it I? And the way, that's right, and, and, and the way that, that they ask it, it is, it's not I, is it? It's not really me, is it? And I think there's a, there's a really good thing that we can learn here. And that the disciples show a flash of humility because they see themselves as capable of possibly betraying Jesus. We don't have Peter's famous statement that I will never forsake you. I will never deny you here. And I think it's important for every one of us as we follow the Lord, as we raise our hands and worship Him and zealously live for Him, there's a level of humility in which we all need to have as we celebrate the Lord to say, it's not I, is it? I need to do self-evaluation of my heart. Not my actions, not all the things that I do, but do I truly and earnestly love the Lord Jesus in my heart? Otherwise, I might be a betrayer. Look down at verse 20. He said to them, it is one of the twelve. We're seeing here the peril of betrayal. It is one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread in the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of Him. But woe. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Keep your eyes down on the text. Right there in verse 21. Jesus says, It is one of the twelve. And He says, woe to that man. This is a declaration of doom. Woe to that man. This person will be doomed and therefore it is better that if he had not been born. Why? Why could it possibly be better for a person to have never been conceived and never been born in the first place? Because hell is a reality. For every person who disbelieves in Jesus and turns their back on Him and walks in disobedience, in greediness, in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life and says, I see who Jesus is, but I'm not going to trust Him with my life. I'm not going to follow Him. I'm not going to commit my life to Him. I'm going to go my own way. Folks, I, I really believe that even though Jesus does not use the word hell here, this could mean nothing less than the fact that Judas is going to hell because he betrayed me. And what is hell? It is a place of eternal and holy wrath that is completely separate from God's blessing and God's grace and His mercy. It would have been better for this man to have not been born than to betray the Son of Man who has come to live and die for sinners. And so, I want to ask you right now, If you'll just take your Bibles, if you will, and turn back to Psalm 41. Psalm 41 is a messianic psalm. It prefigures the Messiah. Hold your place in Mark 14. But we have a picture. A thousand years before 
Jesus ever enters the earth of what happens on this very night as David penned Psalm 41. And Messianic Psalms prefigure the Messiah. They speak to the Messiah's experience and Messiah's person and the Messiah's work. But not everything that is in the psalm speaks explicitly about the Messiah. There there are hints of the Messiah. There are things that we see. And so that's what, what I want you to see in Psalm 41. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. And I do believe that in that section right there, I believe that the worshiping woman that we studied last week, where she takes everything that she has, the, 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 the perfume and the fragrant and the ointment, and opens up that flask and pours it on to Jesus, who is the poor helpless man who had no home and a place to lay his head, this is the woman who is ultimately called blessed right here in verse 2. Because she is helping Jesus, the ultimate poor man. Look at verse 3. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness you restore him to full health. And he says, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I've sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? Of course, that's exactly what they're trying to do to Jesus. And and when one comes to see me, he utters empty words. This is Judas. While his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. And they say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where He lies. And in verse 9, Jesus uses almost these exact words in the Passover meal. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted His heel against me to deceive me, to betray me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me. And look at what Jesus says and raise me up that I may repay them. Can y'all see the person and the work of Jesus and the betrayal and the disobedience and the rebellion against Him in this text? Verse 11, By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me, but you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Turn back to Mark 14. Because as Jesus is leading the Passover meal, and He's going through step one, step two, step three, everything is out, ready to to partake of the meal. Jesus interrupts the scene, absolutely interrupts it, and begins to call and declare this betrayal that is going to happen. And the the disciples are looking out, wait a minute, he's going off script here. That's not what the Passover leader actually says. And now they're beginning to get grieved, and they realize something terrible is about to happen. And Jesus is now embodying the truths of Psalm 41. 
I want us now to go to the third matter of importance where it will all come together. The third matter is communion. Thank you for hanging in here with me. Let's persevere right here so that we can fully take hold of exactly what Jesus would have us to. Let's read verses 22 through 25. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Keep your eyes on the text. Look at verse 22. Jesus changes the script. They're in part three of the Passover meal. And Jesus essentially says, this is not the bread that was eaten in Egypt. This is not the bread that our people have been eating year after year for 1,500 years as a remembrance of temporary redemption. You know what this is? This is me. I have come to be with you. I have come to live as you. I have come to strengthen you in my body, in my soul. This is me. And then look down at the text. Verse 24. He says, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He's saying this is not the blood of a one-year-old lamb in Egypt. This is not the blood of the animals that were sprinkled on our people at the mountain in Exodus 24. This is my blood, which represents my life given over in death. This is me, and this is my blood. And keep your eyes down. He says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. What is a covenant? It is a binding agreement between two parties. And in the Scriptures, we see God's covenant with Noah as He says, Noah, I will never flood the earth again. You see God's covenant with Abraham when He says, Abraham, you shall be blessed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. You see, God's covenant with Moses, where He says, I have this law, and if you live by my law, I will bless you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. And we see God's covenant with David, and He says to David, you shall have a royal throne that is established forever. And right now, we see God in human flesh making His covenant the new covenant. When He says... I am now cutting this covenant and I'm going to write my law on your heart and I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out that old one and I'm going to give you my spirit and it will be the spirit of power, the spirit of blessing, the spirit of peace, the spirit of strength, the spirit of grace and you will walk in it all the days of your life. And then look back down at the text. 
Listen, he says, and I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine. I know we've only had three cups of wine, and I know there's supposed to be a fourth, but I'm not going to partake of the fourth cup of wine because I'm about to leave. But one day, the clouds are going to depart, and I'm going to return, and I'm going to establish my kingdom, and we will enjoy the fourth cup of wine all together in perfect harmony, in perfect peace, in perfect joy as you worship me in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the promise of communion that Jesus gives in this text. So what I want to ask you to do right now is if you would, kind of fold your things up. And as we've done the last few weeks, I want you to get into a place of meditation. And if you're willing, and if you're able to just close your eyes and bow your head so you can just worship the Lord right now, I want to close this message out with a reminder. I want to ask you, what was the main course of the Passover meal? What would have been the main course of the Passover meal? The lamb. The Lamb. But we just read through Mark's account and there was no mention of a Lamb. If you read Matthew's account, if you read Luke's account, if you read John, there's no account of the Lamb. Why is that? Mark, why don't you speak about the Lamb on the table? Because the true Lamb of God is not on the table, He's at the table. Isaiah says in chapter 53 that He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus coming, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is saying, I am the Lamb. I take on your sin. I take on your guilt. I take on your brokenness. I substitute myself for you. And you get to say the same thing that every Israelite said as he was leaving Egypt for the very last time. On the night of Passover, I was a slave under the sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. I escaped that bondage, and now God lives in my midst, and I am following Him all the way to the promised land. That is exactly what you say today if you trust in Jesus Christ, the ultimate Passover Lamb.